Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Guess who's back? Yes, I am finally back in front of the microphone. The last time I was sitting here, it was Tuesday, and then a winter storm hit here in West Texas, and there was no way I was leaving the house on Wednesday, no way I was leaving the house on Thursday, and I was I was worried about even leaving the house today, but the temperature is currently 29 degrees, the sun is shining, so all of the ice is starting to melt. It was it wasn't too difficult getting here. I took the back way to the church and uh that road, well, I just know this. When I go back home, don't take the back way. That that that's what I learned on the way here. Don't don't take the back way. So I'll take uh the, the main road back out of here. But welcome everyone. Yes, this is the Theology Central podcast. It is Friday, February the 4th, 2022. It is currently 2.56 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas, where finally everything is melting, and finally, hopefully, we can get back to normal, right? That I I, I did not like not being able to do anything for a couple of days. It really, I hate that because it really, it takes away, it, it really takes away any sense of flow. I, I know that may not make any sense to you, but when you're, when you're doing podcasts, you just kind of get into a rhythm, kind of into a flow. And you're like, okay, you're ready to go. You're ready to go. And all of a sudden, when you, you haven't done anything for a couple of days, you're like, okay, so when we go back or when I go back, I should say, there's no we, just me. When I go back, so what do I do next? What, what, what do I start with? What, what, like, I know we were working on this and I know we were working on that, but it's been a couple of days and it just, everything feels disjointed and disconnected, but we will fix that. And the only way to fix that is to turn on the microphone and just start somewhere. So I was sitting here looking at my computer, looking at the microphone going, okay, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, someone in the discord channel just posted an article which reads, uh, and th- this is the little like byline underneath the headline. Here's how it reads. Our picks for the books most likely to shape ev- evangelical life, thought, and culture. This comes from Christianity Today. The article is entitled Christianity Today's 2022 Book Awards are picks for the books most likely to shape evangelical life, thought, and culture. Now, as soon as I saw the headline, first when it said book awards, I was like, okay, whatever. And I almost, I, I was going to obviously look at the books, but as far as turning on the microphone and talking about it, I, I didn't really think much about it. But it was the byline that got my attention. That's what caught my attention because these are the books that Christianity Today believes is going to shape evangelical life, thought, and culture. These are the books that Christianity Today believes is, in a sense, going to shape Christianity in 2022, maybe going into the early stages of 2023. And I'm like, well, that, now that, that caught my attention. That, that is like, that's something we need to talk about, right? Because anything that's going to influence Christianity and shape Christianity, I want to know what it is, and I want to not I want to be proactive in talking about it, not reactive. 
I want to say, hey, th- this is where everyone thinks, uh, you know, it, this is what people think is going to shape the way Christians begin to think moving forward. So let's talk about it today. Now, I know this is very impromptu, and obviously I haven't been able to do much research or any investigation because literally they just posted the article in the Discord channel and I immediately went live. So, um, but I can at least let you know what some people believe is going to be shape, shaping and influencing Christianity moving forward. Now, let's say, let's do a couple of things here. First, uh, just a couple of thoughts to really, I, I think that that really needs to shape your thinking when it comes to Influence and when it comes to books, and, and I think this is very important. The average Christian sitting in the pew may be completely unaware of certain books. They may be completely unaware of that the books even exist. They may have never bought one, may have never read it. May, they may not even care about the different books being published. But just because you don't know, just because you don't care, doesn't mean the Christianity that you're a part of isn't being influenced by those very books that you may be ignoring. So many times, I, I, I'll just give you an example. I can remember a long time ago, walking into a church, and uh, we were visiting. We were visiting, and I, I, as soon as the church service started, just kind of watching how everything was going in the church, I was like, I bet you, this just church is being influenced by the purpose-driven church by Rick Warren. I can almost guarantee you that's where that's what's happening. This church is 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 being influenced by that. So after the service, I went into the pastor's office to, to talk to him and to meet him. And uh, behind him was his, you know, bookshelf. And I, I he was talking to me. I really wasn't even looking. I was looking at the books and almost directly behind him, guess what was on the bookshelf? Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren. So I said, oh, uh, what do you think about it? And I, I didn't give any clue whether I agreed or disagreed with the book. And so, so I said, so what do you think about the book? And he started talking about it. I said, well, you know, we're, we're, I'm slowly uh, instituting the changes from that book into the church, but the people in the church don't really realize it. And I'm like, exactly, exactly. That, that right there summed it up. The people in the church, they may not even have been aware of the book, may not even care and say, well, well, I don't care about reading Rick Warren's book. Yeah, you don't care. But just because you don't care doesn't mean the Christianity that you are a part of is not being influenced by it. Ignorance does not negate influence. Ignorance just means you're not aware of the influence, right? In other words, something, things are happening, but you're just, you can't detect. Wait a minute. I think that comes from that. I think that comes from that. That's why information and knowledge at least you at least allows you to detect the source of the influence. There's this just weird idea within some Christians like, I don't care about what books, I don't care about any of that, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And then they, they look around and, and all of a sudden you're like, well, why are you a part of that Christianity? And they don't even realize that basically the Christianity that they're a part of has slowly changed because they're ignorant of the, the information. And again, ignorance does not negate influence. Same thing I always say about church history. Your ignorance of church history does not negate its influence. Just same thing when it comes to theological terms or systems of theology. People can say, well, I don't care about all of that. Well, you may not care about all of that, but when you talk, you clearly ex- you clearly demonstrate that you have been influenced by the very streams of theology that you don't care about. I, I love when people do that. Well, I don't care about that stuff. 
Yeah, and then you start talking, oh, yeah, but you just fall right into that stream of theology and that stream of theology. And clearly, uh, you've been influenced by this, uh, this way of th- thinking and this way of thinking. So maybe you should care. It's just like, if you don't know about it, I can't be influenced about it. It doesn't work that way. So even though these books, m- many of us, and I'll include, my, include myself here, we may not even know, we may not hear anything about these books. We may not even read these books. The question is, is it going to influence the people that will influence the future of Christianity? Will this influence your pastor, the the leadership of your church? Will this begin to influence people, small group leaders within your church, elders, deacons, people who are making decisions about uh, hiring your next pastor? That's, That's what you have to pay attention to. Uh, so I just want to make it very clear that ignorance does not negate influence. So, so uh, there's just, just that, that mindset is just so prevalent within Christianity. And, and it's almost like, well, I don't care to know about all of that stuff. It doesn't impact me. I'm like, you know, it does. It does impact you. So I think that's very important. A second thing that I think, I think this is really something to, to consider. I think the books may influence leadership, which then influence the church and influence the direction of Christianity. But I'm not so convinced, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I am not so convinced that average Christians sitting in the pew, I think if you take 100 Christians sitting in the pew, I think about 95 of them rarely to never really read any Christian books of any significant amount. They, they, they may read novels. They may read other things. They may read some Christian fiction, but I don't think many of them are really reading the Christian books that are influencing seminaries, Bible colleges, pastors. I, I think most Christians just don't read that much. I, I, I hate to say that. I just don't, I, I think sometimes they may read a book that's suggested by a small group leader. I just know as a pastor, I have tried my entire time as a, as a pastor. Hey, read this book. Read this book. Read this book. Hey, well, I'll, I'll, I'll buy everyone in a church a copy of this book. And you just realize that the majority of people are just not going to read them. So let's make it very clear. I, I don't know the average Christian is going to be influenced directly by these books. But the influence will come in an indirect way. Again, ignorance does not negate influence. Just because you're not aware of it doesn't mean you won't be influenced. And I don't think the average Christian are going to spend a lot of time reading the latest books being released within the Christian world. They're not reading books about theology or doctrine. I, I just, I, maybe I'm wrong. I just, I just, I, there's all, the way I've always seen it in my whole Christian life, there's always a few in every church, right? There's always a few. And strangely enough, typically it's women, it's, it's not even men. Uh, but but from from what I have seen, typically it's women, which again, what, what, why, where are the men? But typically the men are the ones who almost brag about not wanting to read, not liking to read, almost like it's some, you know, I don't know, badge of honor. But and there and again, please note what's what's frightening about that is many cases. Well, the church would require male leadership, and it's the men who are not paying any attention. Well, we can get a whole discussion. I just don't know. You can tell me what you think. How much influence do you think occurs in the local church 
as a result of books, of, of Christian books being published? How many people in your church, like, just think of your church. How many people are walking around going, hey, did you read this? 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 Like, how, ma- how much talking and discussion actually occurs about Christian books? Books on theology, books on doctrine, books on church history. How, how, how many books? I mean, like, if you, I, I, I mean, you can tell me, maybe my perception is completely wrong. That's why I, I need you guys, because... You're there in all kinds of different churches in different states and in different countries. You can tell me, no, in my church, there's a lot of discussion about books. And if so, send me the books that everyone is talking about. Keep me, keep me, because that gives us insight to what's happening within the church. And that's one of the things I like to do is to try to figure out what's going on within the church. So I, so ignorance does not negate influence. And I'm just not, I think the influence to the average person in the pew comes indirectly through leadership. And I think the average person in the pew, in many cases, just isn't reading. They're just not paying attention, which then creates the ignorance of the very things that could influence them because they're not paying any attention. And I I think if you take, look, it's hard enough to get Christians to read their Bible. It's hard enough to get Christians to study their Bible. To add on to it, reading important books, it's... (laughs) It doesn't happen. It just, maybe I'm wrong. I just, I just don't think it happens. I've always met, there's always just been those few individuals who are like, oh, give me a book to read. They'll read. I've, uh, and in the history of my church, I think it's typically been women where I mention a book and they'll go, okay, what's the name of that book? And they'll write it down. And next thing you know, they're trying to get a copy of the book and they're reading it or asking me for a copy and they will read it. It's typically not men. And again, I, I, you you can we, you can draw your own conclusions about what that means for Christianity moving forward. Oh, but what I want to do, I know I've already taken 14 minutes. What I want to do is just kind of go through some of these books that Christianity today are going to be the books most likely to shape ev- evangelical, I don't know why I'm having so many problems with that word today, even evangelical life, thought, and culture. And then as we go through 2022, you can tell me, oh, remember that book you mentioned in February? Well, guess what? That's the book we're using in our small group. That's the book my pastor recommended. That's the book I heard Christians talking about. Or we make make it through 2022, never even hear about any of these books. Then the question will be, however, even though we haven't heard about the books, did the books shape the thinking of pastors and leaders? And so the people are being influenced by the books which are never named. Many pastors stand behind the pulpit, put forth an idea, a hypothesis, or a theory that they got from a book, and they may not ever mention the name, the book in which they got the idea, the thought, the hypothesis, or the theory. Now, again, if you read books, then you can be like, oh, no, no, that's from page six, pastor. I, I know I know where that's coming from, okay? I know where that's coming from. But let's see what they have to say here. All right, here we go. Um, I'm going to, I'm not going to read everything they have here um, because it'll, it'll take forever. It says, uh, he says, that's why we're pleased. I'm, I'm skipping like multiple paragraphs here. That's why we're pleased to, to dedicate the bulk of, of Christianity Today's January, February issue, not only to our annual book awards, 
for which now included a, a new category, marriage and family, but also to books themselves and the form of excerpts from several of the finalists and a number of the winners. Together, we believe they represent some of the year's most exemplary Christian thinking. Uh, to locate these excerpts, look for the links as you scroll through the categories. Congre- congratulations to this year's honorees and let no one dismiss their work as a chasing after the wind. And then it starts naming the books, again, that they believe is going to really shape evangelical thought and life and culture. There's there's far more there they want to say, but they get into Ecclesiastes. And we could get into all, it could just take me, it it could sidetrack sidetrack us and get us uh, distracted. And I don't want that to occur. So here we go. Book number one, Apologetics. And evangelism category. So this is the apologetics and evangelism category. Now, this is always important because you want to know what kind of apologetic arguments are being used within Christianity for different things. Because those arguments, they usually, they may start off in some book, some in some academic setting. And then those uh, apologetic arguments then are presented at the in the pulpit, Sunday school classrooms, and those kinds of areas. And so you want to know, are these good apologetic arguments? What are the apologetic arguments? And you always want to kind of see what is the attitude or direction the church is going in regards to evangelism. So this is the apologetics and evangelism category. And the first book that they have here is called Urban Apologetics, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel. Urban Apologetics, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel. All right. There's a lot we could, there's a lot of questions we could have with that uh, title. Um, I would just question our do how how this is a question we could ask everyone if i had a bunch of people here in the church how different do you think apologetics are based on the culture in which you are trying to present christianity do you have to drastically change your apologetic pro approach going from one people group to a different people group, from one geographical region of the country to a different geographical region to the country? Do you change your apologetic approach based off race, culture, education, wealth? Is there a, is there a dramatic change there that has to occur? That, 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 that's just a question I think we could all think about and discuss. But urban apologetics, restoring black dignity with the gospel. Now, this is what it says about the book. The essays in urban apologetics do much more than merely debunk the myth that Christianity is a white man's religion. Now, I, I just have to stop here. How influential do you think that myth is that Christianity is a white man's religion? Now, now see, now this is where, pers- this is where trying to hear people from different walks of life is so important. I, obviously, I'm white, and I grew up here in the middle of nowhere, Texas. So from my perspective, I never thought, wait, Christianity is a white man's religion. Christianity is for white people. I never thought about it from a race perspective. I never thought, is Christianity Christianity only for this race and not this, that race? I've never really given it much thought. 
I, I, I've never thought about it in, 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 in line of color. Now, I don't know, is it, is it popular in, within some communities to say, oh, Christianity, that's only for white people. Is, 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 that, is that even a, is that something that we need to address? Is, is, that, is that that big of a problem? It just seems like, a, I mean, I'm not saying that there's never been anyone in history who may put forth that argument or make that claim. I just don't know how influential that concept is in 2022 to require a book that has to possibly debunk that idea. So according to this, the essays in urban apologetics do much more than merely debunk the myth that Christianity is a white man's religion. They compellingly blend an adherence to biblical truth with an awareness of cultural trends. The authors evoke themes like black dignity and black consciousness. And in the next breath, they press the importance of the sufficiency of scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the necessity of conversion. They take identity seriously, and they also take the gospel seriously. Okay, now I got to stop right here. When it says it takes identity seriously. Now, remember, I haven't read any of these books. I'm just giving you some just basic thoughts on this list and something to, to look out for. I'm just listening for what I'm doing is I'm reading this. I'm listening to certain phrases going, okay, what do they mean by that? That one identity, I think, is super important. Because there seems to be a lot of, there is a lot of discussion within our culture about identity, identity, identity. Is there a, like, sexual identity, cultural identity, political identity? I, I believe that one of the biggest negative consequences upon evangelical Christianity has been such an emphasis on identity within the culture that somehow crept into the church. Our identity as Christians should not be based on our our culture, our education, our politics, and our race, our identity should be who we are in Christ. It shouldn't be, I mean, what, what does it mean by black dignity and black consciousness? What, what do those words mean? Now, isn't the dignity, I mean, is there, is there white dignity versus black dignity? I, I, I don't... To me, it's, it's human dignity because we're, but human beings are created in the image of God. Black consciousness versus white consciousness. I, like, that seems to be a, a cultural construct. Christianity is not about a, about a black consciousness or a white consciousness. It is about a God consciousness. It is, a, it is about being aware of God. We must be so conscious of God because we cannot understand ourselves until we truly understand God. Again, borrowing from Calvin's Institutes. So th that's just interesting language. So they cover themes or evoke themes like black dignity and black consciousness. And then the next breath, they press in the importance of sufficiency of scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit and the necessity of conversion. They take identity seriously and they also take the gospel seriously. It's like, here's identity, here's the gospel, but isn't my identity tied to, in a sense, the gospel message that I am created in the image of God. However, I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself Christ saves me and my identity, I die to self, and now I focus on my identity in Christ, not any other cultural identity 
thing. Now, maybe the book does lead you that direction. It just seems weird the way they are describing it. It seems they're definitely borrowing from the culture here. Um, they, they are not blind to prejudice, and neither are they deaf to truth. And all this, they definitely expose the shallowness of the false choice between biblical faith, faithfulness and ethnic identity. So they say that there's a false choice between biblical faithfulness and ethnic identity. Ethnic identity. Now, I, I have to be, now, now th- this, my perspective here may be somewhat flawed because I don't think anyone agrees with me, but I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't, I, I don't, okay, for example, a lot of people love to do those like DNA tests where they, you know, or your ancestry test, whatever it is. And I guess you do a DNA swab and then they send you results saying your, your ethnicity, you're made up from this or that. I, I don't care about any of that. Like it makes no sense to me. I don't care. I don't care if I'm 10% this, 20% this, 5% that, 1%. None of that matters to me. What if, who cares? Who cares? I'm a human being created in the image of God, whether I'm 20% German or from England or from, who cares? I don't, I don't understand why any of that matters. This is not my home. None of that matters to me. My identity, remember to me, I, I, I think that I think this book may demonstrate one of the major problems within the Christian church is I think we have forgotten that Christ calls us to die to self, deny self and not follow self. But everybody wants, I want to be, I want my identity based off my ethnicity. I want my identity based off my politics. I want my uh, identity based off the country in which I live. And I, I don't get any of that. This is not my home. Who cares what I'm made up of? Who cares? I'm a sinner created in the image of God and I need to die to self. I must decrease and he, he must increase. So it's just really... Ethnic identity, ethnic identity, ethnic identity. I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't know why that's so important. Maybe I'm missing something. But I think some, for some people, their ethnic identity is the utmost importance to them. Like it's the, it's, it's so critical to them. And I just, maybe, am I missing something? Like, I'm not trying to put it this way. Is it possible? Let let me state it this way. Is it possible that we can make our ethnicity an idol? Just, just, I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know, but they're, they're, they're saying that there's, there's a, that they, they expose the shallowness of the false choice between biblical faithfulness, faithfulness and ethnic identity, meaning that you can be biblically faithful and, have a clear ethnic identity that you're, I guess, proud of and that you you want to, I, I just, I don't get it. I've never really thought about an ethnic identity in any way, shape, or form. And, and I don't know. It goes on. Perhaps it should not be surprising that concern for cultural and a culture and identity can sit alongside contending for the faith. So here it is again. So you can have a concern for culture and identity and put that alongside contending for the faith. So while you're contending for the faith, you can care about culture and you can care about your identity. Your identity. Your, and obviously what they want to emphasize is caring about your identity. I, I'm assuming in this particular case, 
as someone who is black. Your, your, your black identity, your black consciousness. I, I will, may, isn't the Christian message is forget that identity and focus on our identity in Christ? Isn't that really, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Like, like in Christ, all of those identities are obliterated. And it's now that I'm just, I'm a son of God. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm living my life. I don't, it's not about my race. It's not about my ethnicity. It's not about, I think Christianity, maybe, maybe I'm mistaken, but I just don't think Christianity emphasizes that. And, and some in the New Testament, when everybody was trying to, don't we find that kind of ethnic identity creating division and problems? Oh, they're Jews, they're Gentiles, they're Samaritan, Samaritan or Samaritan from Samaria. Uh, doesn't it lead to division and not to unity? I, I don't know. Um, it says, perhaps it should not be surprising that concern for culture and identity can sit alongside contending for the faith. But in today's social climate, it is wonderfully refreshing combination. So this book is a refreshing combination. Hey, you can care about your faith, but you can maintain that ethnic identity, that black consciousness, that all of these other phrases that they use. I don't know where the book is going to go. I don't know where this book is going to go. Maybe we need to to, to read the book. Um, I think the issue is, does the Bible offer a different perspective on all of the things the culture is fighting and divided over? Like, do we... Sometimes I think what we have a tendency to do is say, culture is upset about identity and, and all of these issues. And the church comes along and is like, how can we, in a sense, bring their concerns into Christianity and somehow bring them together? We always try to create this hybrid. And I think every time we do that, we ultimately systematically eat away at biblical Christianity until biblical Christianity ceases to exist. Doesn't the Bible would have, I think the Bible usually provides a radically different mindset than what the culture is arguing about. And we don't need to somehow try to adapt Christianity to what the culture is saying. We have to just promote the biblical answer, no matter how different it is to what the culture is upset about. I don't know. You, You can... You can, uh, you can, you can discuss that for yourself. All right. So, um, so there's the first book, um, Urban Apologetics, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel. Second book, In Quest, In Quest of the Historical Adam, A Biblical and Scientific Exploration. All right, now this is by William Lane Craig. The other book, uh, Urban Apologetics, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel, is edited by Eric Mason, and it seems to just be a, a, a collection of essays. It's what it seems to be, dealing with these issues. Next book, In Quest of the Historical Adam, A Biblical and Scientific Exploration. Now, this one by William Lane Craig could be interesting. Could It makes me a little worried. It's like, okay, what are they going to, again, are we going to take concerns from the culture, criticisms from the culture, and somehow try to, once again, 
accommodate that and somehow bring it into Christianity. And we end up compromising Christianity when it comes to, say, the book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve. Because if you undermine that story too much, you really destroy the message of the entire Bible, right? You end up destroying the need for salvation. You destroy the fall, sinful nature. I mean, you begin to destroy everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious where this book is going to go. Here is their description. This is a bold, rigorous, original work at the intersection of faith and science. For those who wonder whether contemporary science, including evolutionary science, is compatible with the Christian faith. Now, so this is the idea. We got evolutionary science and we have faith. How can they be combat- compatible? We got to, we got to, that Christians have, I think what we're going to see, I, well, I'm starting to pick up a theme here, right? There's the culture. This is what they're, we've got to bring that concern into the church and somehow make them compatible. The church is always looking for a way to make Christianity compatible to the culture. The church's job is never to make Christianity compatible to the culture. Christianity will always be counterculture, opposite to the culture, against the culture. We can't make them compatible. They're not compatible, all right? There's just no way. There's irreconcilable differences. So that already makes me concerned. Hey, hey, evolutionary science and faith, they're not in there. You, you can make them work together. Why do we feel like we have to make them work? My approach has always been, give me the best evolutionary science. Give me the, what the science says. Okay, that's great. I'll pass the test. I'll understand it. I'll write the paper for school, whatever. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Great. Now, I open my Bible. It says something, something completely different. Absolutely contrary to what I just learned in science. Now, some Christians are like, well, what do we do? 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 Well, what do you mean, what do we do? I believe the scripture is the infallible inspired word of God. So my faith will say, this is what I believe about creation. This is what I believe about man. This is what I believe about man's nature. This is what I believe by faith. I'm, I, I've got no problem going, that's what science teaches and understanding it. But I will let how, if they're ever going to be reconciled or which one's going to prove to be true and which one's going to be proven to be false, I'll let time figure that out. I'll let time figure because you can spend just so much energy and time is trying to go, well, okay, wait, so science says this. Okay, well, let's see if, if we could, we could get rid of the, the idea of a 24 hour creation. Okay. That, okay. Now we can be compatible. All of that uh, attempts to make it compatible. Does that somehow all of a sudden, there's people out there going, you know what? Now that you've made it compatible, I'll decide to become a Christian. I, I, I don't. The world will be like, see, we get along with those Christians now. I, I think every attempt we try to make it compatible, all we systematically do is usually undermine the truth claims of Christianity. But I, I'm picking up a, a theme here in these books. Let, let's, let's go through this again. So this is a bold rigorous original work at the intersection of faith and science for those who wonder whether contemporary science, including evolutionary science is compatible with Christian faith. Greg's book will be seen as a breath of fresh air for the sake of argument. Craig assumes the evolutionary thesis of common ancestry and considers whether that thesis is compatible with a historical Adam and Eve. He concludes that the evidence is not only consistent with the belief in a historical first human pair, but uh, provocatively that the first humans ought to be identified 
uh, and then it gives the scientific terms with who we should be identified with, dating back to somewhere between 750,000 and a million years ago. So, so the first human pair is to be identified dating back to somewhere between 750,000 and a million years ago. He says, I don't agree with every move that Greg makes. Undoubtedly, many within the Christian community will not agree either, but his project is not revisionary. Rather, he is seeking with intellectual humility, boldness, and rigor to walk the path of reason and the search of truth. Now, I think... I, I, here's, here's like, okay, give me your scientific theory. Th- this is what it feels like to me. Give me your scientific theory. Okay, so you think we can go back to a common ancestry that goes back between 750,000 and a million years, okay? And here's the scientific classification for that group of people. Okay, got, got you, okay. Okay, now, here's what we're gonna do. Adam and Eve fits in right there. Good, see? We're compatible. <laughs> okay, so, so I, I would have all kinds of questions. So does Adam and Eve show up before death? Or do you have death before Adam and Eve? And if you have death before Adam and Eve, then death is not the result of the fall, right? So you see, you start undermining biblical Christianity. I don't know what William Lane Gregg does in the book, but just again, that it just seems another attempt, like we've got to make it compatible. We've got to figure it out. And sometimes in an effort to be compatible, all we're doing is compromising. Look, I don't know how you, I don't know how you make compatible a science with the Bible in regards to creation, because the Bible is like God created everything on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. He creates Adam and Eve. They fall into sin as a result of that fall into sin. There's death and all of creation is changed. And if you want to try to fit in science there, you can try it. I just, I don't, I don't feel the need that I've got to somehow figure it out. I just, I just, uh, to me, I've, I've seen all of the attempts. I've seen, you know, so-called Christian scientists making claims. And then typically what happens is then the secular science will come back and look at those claims made by Christian science and then debunk them or say that that it's wrong. Many times uh, Christian scientists have had to come out and then say, well, we can't use that argument anymore because it was proven not to be true. And it just makes us look, it just spins like we're spending a lot of time to try to answer these questions that I don't think can be answered. I don't know. You, you, you can, I think we've talked about this William Lane Craig book already and uh, looked at some of the claims and some of it is kind of like, whoa, you're, you're really destroying the whole biblical idea of Adam and Eve. But there, the name of the book is In Quest of the Historical Adam, A Biblical and Scientific Exploration. What we want to look for there is do we start hearing a different approach to Genesis emerging and arising in different churches, and we hear it from different pulpits based off the influence of this book. That That's what we have to listen for and, and pay attention to. All right. Um, they have some finalists here. Those are the books that uh, uh, won the awards. Um, I'm just, oh, I kind of want to look at some of these books that are in the finalist column. I really kind of do. Um, let me see here. Let me see. Does it, re, does it give us information here? No, it goes directly to Amazon. All right. I guess I'm going to skip uh, some of these. Let me go back and open this. 
I, they, they've got some books listed here as finalists, but they don't have the write-up about the books. And I kind of like reading these write-ups about the books from Christianity Today because it gives me something to at least kind of try to ask questions about. They, they, I'll just name some of the other books they have mentioned here. Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Uh, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Those books, here's my perspective. Those books irritate me to no end. And the, and and when I say those books, there's been lots of those books. Hey, hey, kids going off to college, they need this book because they, they're they not going to be able to survive. They're going to walk into that secular campus and their entire faith is going to be absolutely upended and destroyed. And they're going to face all kinds of problems because they're going into a hostile environment and they're not prepared for it. All right, I'm sorry I had to sneeze right there. Good thing I have the uh, mute button. And I, those books drive me crazy. And here's what dri- why it drives me crazy. Here, here's what happens. So you have a Christian kid who grew up in church, right? They're, they're now 18, 19 years old and they're going off to college. And now what they need, after 19 years of growing up in church, now they need a book. They need someone to write, give them a book. And, and it'll be all these ministries saying, hey, that kid that's getting ready to go off to college, make sure you buy this book because we've got all of these studies that show when these Christian kids walk into these secular campuses, their faith is destroyed. And the next thing you know, they're deconstructing their faith and it's the end of Christianity. And it drives me crazy because I have to ask, what in the world has the church been doing for 18 years and those kids' lives? What did the, what did the church do for those kids for 18 years? What? And what I typically see is they put them in garbage youth groups with garbage youth ministries. That's more about entertaining kids, trying to be hip, trying to be cool, hiring some youth director who probably in many cases knows very little about doctrine, very little about theology. And, and, and it's all about activities, pizza parties, lock-ins, games. You got to keep them entertained, entertained, entertained. So we entertain the kids for 18 years. And now when they're getting ready to go off into the bad world, then what we have to do is like, okay, guys, okay, guys. Now I need you to read this book. Okay, now you're getting ready to start college, but I need you to read this book. I need you to have this book because you're going to get there and those mean people are going to destroy your faith. It's like, well, well, why didn't the church prepare them? Why didn't they hear all of the questions and difficulties that they're going to hear on the college campus from the pulpit? Why didn't they hear their pastor talking about these difficulties and philosophical issues and the philosophical issues that arise from, from within Christianity and the problems of suffering and, and, the, and, and, and the fact that the Bible lays out a, a morality that the world hates? Why, why wouldn't a young person sitting in the main sanctuary, not sitting in a youth room, you know, playing video games, but in an actual sanctuary paying attention. But it's almost like, you know, youth walk in like, no, it's church. I only pay attention when I'm in the youth group. And then in the youth group, it's, it's you know, I don't know. We, we, we reduce the ministry to youth to the lowest common denominator that's more about just keeping the kids happy so they'll keep coming to church so that Christian parents will feel good that their kid is still coming to church. That's really what it's about. Many, many parents will find a church that will provide enough entertainment to keep their teenager happy. So then the parent can pat themselves on the back and go, well, my kid still goes to church. Well, I'm a good parent. Why wouldn't your kid want to come to church? It's, it's Disneyland. It's, it's Six Flags. It's a joke. 
Take away all of the fun, food, and activity and see if your kid still wants to come to church. Well, now my kid doesn't want to come to church. Time to go find a new church so that we can find the entertainment. Well, entertain them to death. What, what's, I don't understand what's the point. The church was not designed to entertain your kids. Wasn't there to provide fun for your kids. It's there supposedly to treat them as a young adult and treat them with the, and give them the preaching and teaching of God's word and going just as in depth with a teenager as you do with the adults. You don't need a mod. I hate that whole thing. Like, well, they're teenagers. You can't expect. I'll stop that nonsense. I hate that. And so then uh, every year there's a new book. We got to get this book in the hands of graduates. We got to get these books in the hands of graduates because if they don't, they're going to go off to college. It's going to be the end. So now we need you to give a donation of $20 so that we can send, you know, five books to, to graduate, to, to graduate high school graduates so we can prepare them for college. It's like, why do I need to give you money to do what the church should have been doing? <laughs> but the church isn't. And, and I, it drives me crazy. So this is a book, um, in order to, to uh, a letters to a Christian student, letters to a Christian student to, in keeping the faith in college, because you got to survive, got to survive, got to survive. It's more about now. It's almost this is the way we approach it now. Young person, okay, you're going off to that mean secular university. Okay, what we need to do is we got to help you survive. We got to. It's like we go into survival mode. Like why, why, why survival mode? Go there and be the Christian that you are. Well, don't you don't need to survive it. You need to influence it. Why, why, why is it that, okay, all right. He's like, you're getting ready to go into a war zone. And why wouldn't they go into the war zone ready to be, go in a sense, go on the offensive and to be light and to be salt and to be influential instead of like, okay, okay, here, here's your, here's your armor, pr- pr- protect yourself. I understand spiritual armor, but I'm saying it's almost like this uh, under siege mentality where you're not going to be light and salt, you're going there to hide and to protect yourself so that your faith is not destroyed. I just, I mean, why would your kid think they're going to a secular university? They're not going to hear that, which is contradictory to Christianity. Like, it's almost like, okay, my kid can't handle it. If they get to college and someone calls into question Christianity, they're just going to completely crumble. And it's like that, that they've been so protected that they can't handle hearing anything that I, I don't understand the mentality, but that, that's another one of those books. So I think it'll be another one of those books that has, uh, well, like all the others that have come before it, that's supposed to you know, save all of the kids in college and nobody ever wants to look at what the church is doing before they go to college. All right. Uh, the next book is, uh, these are just the finalists they have. So first, so the first so the first two books, the first one is Urban Apologetics, Restoring Black Dignity with the Gospel. Second, and Quest of the Historical Adam, A Biblical and Scientific Exploration. Those are the two main books. And then the finalist, these are all under apologetics and uh, evangelism. Then the finalist, one of the finalists is Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. And then next, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of of Christian theism. Now, that one actually, of all the books listed, that one sounds most interesting to me. Why God makes sense in a world that doesn't, the beauty of Christian theism. Does Christian theism, and and I, I don't even like the term Christian theism, does the belief in God 
help us make sense of a world that doesn't make any sense. I think that that's a, uh, that sounds like an interesting book. That one right there would, I would probably buy that one first other than those others. Those others seem like an attempt to try to compromise. And this one seems to be like, well, if we take the concept of God, does it help us make sense of the world? I would, that's the one I would probably just recommend just from the title, why God makes sense in a world that doesn't the beauty of Christian theism. All right. Now, that's under the apologetics and evangelism category. The next category is biblical studies. Here's what they have. The first book, A Theology of Paul and His Letters, The Gift of the New Realm in Christ by Douglas, and his last name is spelled M-O-O. I'm going to say Douglas Moo. Many of us are familiar with Moo in analysis mode from his various commentaries on books of the New Testament. Here we also find Moo in synthesis mode as he details the theology of Paul across his epistles. That is biblical theology at its best. As the foremost Pauline scholar comprehensively presents the fulfillment of Old Testament promises in Christ while looking forward to their consummation. I especially uh, appreciated Moo's up-to-date balanced presentations of contested issues like the new perspective on Paul. Now, this one could be interesting, and here's the reason why. If you go to church, you're going to hear preaching, obviously, from epistles written by the Apostle Paul. If there's new scholarship looking at the, uh, the Apostle Paul and, and, and what was taught in those epistles, then you want to know that, that scholarship. You want to know those positions and perspectives because if you hear your pastor preach it, then you are aware of where it's coming from and you've already made a determination if you think it is biblical or if you believe brings in some kind of biblical compromise. So this one could be very important, all right? Because again, I, I know you think, I know some Christians just are, are, I hate to say it, are naive. They think that when the, the pastor's up there preaching, he's preaching the Bible. No, in many cases, I'm not saying he's not preaching the Bible, but in many cases, he's preaching the interpretation of that Bible based off books found in his study, all right? It's, it, it, you, you, sometimes you think, well, no, he's sitting in the study, and he's just interpreting the Bible. No, he's looking at all kinds of books in regards to those passages. And then he he puts that in his own words and he preaches that as, as this is what the Bible says. But in many cases, no, that's what someone said about the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for the pastor to look at those books. I just believe in many cases, all of those books should just be brought to the pulpit and said, hey, today we're going to look at Romans 3 and I'm going to use this book uh, and see what they have to say about it, and then we'll analyze it. Like, just just do it in a more academic way, but that doesn't really work for preaching. People don't like that. People just like, just give me the three points, and then I'll just say that that's the correct interpretation. But is that the correct interpretation, or is that the correct interpretation based off a book found in your pastor's study? So this is a new one on the Apostle Paul. Again, it's called A Theology of Paul and His Letters, The Gift of the New Realm in Christ, by Douglas Moo, M-O-O, from Zondervan. This is the kind of book that can influence people sitting in the pew without them ever knowing the book exists or ever even being aware of it. Again, ignorance does not negate influence. Next book, 
Covenant, the framework of God's grand plan of redemption by Daniel I. Block. Covenant, the framework of God's grand plan of redemption. This is a work of developed biblical theology from an established scholar. Block's years of training manifest themselves in the breadth and depth of this book as he guides readers through the cosmic story of God's ultimate plan of redemption and through the framework of covenant. While Block is primarily an Old Testament scholar, he explores how the New Testament view of covenant carries over into the New Testament in profound ways. Covenant should be the fixture in courses on biblical theology for years to come while also appealing to interested readers and scholars. So they're saying that this book should be a fixture in courses on biblical theology. Now, why is that important? Well, because the men, the people are being trained for the ministry for the future. They're saying this book should be used in some of the courses that they are taught. That means it will influence the church 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years now. I don't know if that will happen, but we'll have to see. Now, that sounds like it could be very much in line with covenant theology. We, we can have a whole discussion about that, but covenant, the framework of God's grand plan of redemption, Daniel I. Block. You may want to look that one up, all right? And we'll just stop right there. They've got a bunch. Oh, well, one more. We'll do one more. This one is uh, found under the category of Christian living and discipleship. Christian living and discipleship, because this is the kind of book that possibly people in the pew may buy. They may buy that book on Adam, maybe, maybe. Um, I don't know how influential that book on um, the first book we mentioned Urban Apologetics, Restoring Black Dignity Within the Gospel. I, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know who will be purchasing that book. The uh, the one on Adam in quest of the historical Adam. I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians may pick that up because a lot of Christians get caught up in the whole evolutionary kind of argument. All right. So a lot of people there. The Two Biblical Studies book, A Theology of Paul and His Letters, The Gift of new of the New Realm in Christ, and Covenant, The Framework of God's Grand Plan of Redemption. I could see both of those books becoming influential in Bible colleges and seminaries. That's where I see those could become influential. Then influences, and influencing pastors, influencing preaching, which then influences the people. I just don't see the average person I don't, I don't ever, I put it this way. I don't think I'll ever walk into my church, see someone sitting in the pew reading a theology of Paul and his letters, the gift of the new realm in Christ or covenant, the framework of God's grand plan of redemption. Okay. I just don't see that. Maybe in your church, I just don't see that happening. All right. Um, but then the next one I want to go to is this one, because this one I do feel could show up in the hands of the average church uh, member. This one is called Christian, uh, this is under the category, Christian Living and Discipleship. The name of the book is Living Radical Discipleship Inspired by John Stott. Living Radical Discipleship. Living Radical Discipleship. This is what it says. John Stott was one of the most respected theologians of all time. On the 10th anniversary of his death, editor Laura Metzner uh, uh, compiled a series of essays from the contributors who share how Stott's radical convictions on topics such as creation, creation care, social responsibility, and a global church leadership shaped their thinking and ministry. 
As with many uh, anthologies, some of these essays feel more relevant than others. Nevertheless, living radical discipleship reminds readers how the gospel intends to transform our lives so that we can then transform the world around us. Again, this is called uh, living radical discipleship. The only reason I think it could be influential is because someone who's in a small group leader, like living radical discipleship, that, that sounds good. And maybe... That would what that would show up in a church. I, I don't know if essays from John Stott would be very popular with the average person. I don't know. I don't know. That one I feel could show up, uh, but I I could be wrong. Now there's uh, other categories and other books here, which I don't have the time to read them. You can probably uh, you can probably do a Google search and find the list for yourself. Christianity Today's 2022 Book Awards. Christianity Today's 2022 Book Awards are picks for the most likely books most likely to shape evangelical life, thought, and culture. It was actually published on December the 14th, 2021. But again, someone posted it in the Discord channel while I was sitting here figuring out what to do. And I wanted to just bring that to your attention. Now, this is what I want you to take away from it. I just remember ignorance does not negate influence. That these books may uh, influence people in, in, a, in an indirect way because they're influencing pastors, seminaries, and Bible colleges. We can ask ourselves, how much do you think actual reading of Christian books actually impacts the average Christian? I don't think it does very much. Honestly, I don't. I just don't think. I've not seen in my Christian life that the majority of Christians are really that committed to reading and studying books. I It just... From the from the very beginning, of, I became a Christian. I was like, "Let's go to the Bible bookstore and buy books." And I was like, "No." Now there there's always there's always those people who will. Many of them become pastors. The average layperson, I, I just don't think they are. They're, they're relying on their pastor. Well, see the the danger there. Their pastor is being influenced by books. That influence now is coming to you, and you don't even realize that you're being influenced by it. That's that's the. That's the whole critical issue here. But I, I, I would just do this. This is what I want you to think about. I want you to pay attention. Like, become more aware of books that Christians are talking about. Like, if you start seeing like, man, I've had like seven people on social media or seven people in my church or seven people where, and they keep talking about this book. When you see that, okay, first, take note for yourself. You may want to go get a copy of that book immediately so that you know what's going on. But here's what I really want you to do. Email me immediately at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com going, hey, I've had 15 people mention this book in the last six weeks. What do you know about it? And then I will immediately go, let's, let's do, let's work on it. And then I will tell it, I will do a podcast, tell everyone to buy the book and then we'll discuss it because we want to pay attention to what is influencing Christianity. You got to you got to pay attention. You got to pay attention. Or if you hear a sermon and they mention a book or or you you can kind of go oh, okay, that's that's where that's coming from. Then we want to we want to figure out what is influencing preaching. We want to influence what's and uh, in, we want to know what is influencing small groups. We want to know what's influencing the average Christian. Because that gives us a clue where Christianity is going. Now sadly, what should be influencing Christianity is the in-depth study of God's word. 
should be God's word, God's word, God's word, God's word. But so many times there's what, (laughs) here's how it works. We may study God's word, but what's influencing our study of God's word is what other people have written about what's in God's word. And then we take that and impose it upon the text. So in many cases, all of the study of God's word does not really amount to actual study of God's word. It's the study of what other people have said about God's word. That's why I keep, I try so hard with the Bible study exercise to get you actually involved in the process so that you become, you, you become equipped to detect when, wait a minute, I don't think that's in the actual text. I've studied that text. That's not, where are you getting this from? And then you'll find out, oh, trust me, it's from a book. So I think that's important. All right, I'm going to stop right there. Oh, I wanted to go, I wanted to go so much further here. There's a lot of books listed. Yeah, I don't know why I ever thought in my right mind I could make it through all of these. But um, yeah, there you go. There's some books. All right, we'll stop right there. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.